And welcome to the broadcast of Better Together Republicans and Democrats who love America, only in reverse. Democrats and Republicans who love America. It doesn't matter the order, really. Um, episode 41. So, <laughs> oh, the flurry. The flurry of the news today. Everything January 6th. <laughs> Everything testimonies pretty much conclusively showing that it was a deliberate decisive coup on our government by Republicans, eight of them congressmen apparently, congresspeople excuse me, can't forget our Marjorie Taylor Greene out there, right? Yeah, and the most surprising of all is because they are found involved, I don't know if it's guilty, not guilty, I don't want to use the wrong terminology, but Apparently, they are not barred from office. <laughs> so, I just have a little problem with that. I think if you coordinate a coup on our branches of government and our American democracy, that should pretty much disqualify you from ever holding an office. Again, whether it's a senator, a congressperson, president, vice president, anything else. So. I mean, I guess we need to make this law, apparently. <laughs> to be absolutely clear to both parties and all parties that, no, you cannot try to overthrow the government by violence and coercion of violence and then also run again for the office. That would be an automatic disqualifier, which I guess is not, necessarily the case that it's an automatic disqualifier, but it needs to be. You know, we just, we're finding out so much about this government, aren't we? <laughs> Way more than civics class ever taught us. Oh, man. So, yeah, that needs to become law. The House, I put it to you, um, in so many terms as, yes, you may not be participatory in any way to staging a coup and expect to retain your office at ever of any level of government. I think that's fair. You have to work within the system. The system is clunky. It was designed to be clunky. It's not a parliament. Parliaments are efficient. We're not efficient. We never said we were. We're three clunky branches, but uh, you don't get to then get frustrated with the clunky and then just try to battering ram the vehicle through, you know, and then think that you can still have keys to the car and drive. No, you've broken trust if you've staged a coup, if you have participated in inciting a coup, if you have anything to do with provoking a coup that needs to that needs to end your political career. Right? Yes, Republicans, far right, far left, agreed. Should we be in agreement with us? Well, apparently it needs to become law. Because apparently it's not. Marjorie gets to run for re-election again. As it stands now. I mean, th that is... I think it's just so insane because I don't think our founding fathers believed we would get to this level of insanity but we are and so we need to fix it you know make it very clear you don't get a hold office if you're going to instigate a insurrection in any way
I don't have articles right now about that because there's just so many. Everything was just flooding about January 6th and the testimonies and I'm like flash everything about Clarence Thomas. <laughs> I'm like flashbacking to like the 90s with him and Anita Hill and the Coke can and I'm like, well, here we are full circle, you know. And uh, Hillary Clinton came out, you know, condemning Clarence Thomas and said she knew him in law school and he was a jerk then and he's a jerk now essentially. And I mean, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm like, what, what really is like shocking to me is him even thinking that they should try to interfere in any way with contraception in this era of sexually transmitted diseases. Forget about even the pregnancy issue. But, I mean, the disease issue alone. And this is a man in the Supreme Court. He needs to go. You, you cannot mess with contraception rights. And that is a definite overstep of church and state. And apparently now that's even up for grabs. Apparently, apparently so. Apparently that's going to be one of the agenda items is to um, destabilize the separation of church and state. <laughs> it's getting, it's very interesting times, let's just say. Um, not really sure, you know, the thought process on that type of rigid religious mind. I don't really understand that mentality in that way. Like, if you really do trust God and you really do trust Jesus, do you need to be so micromanaging of everybody else around you in your world? Maybe let Jesus take the wheel. Maybe not be so um, micromanaging of the wheel. Right? Maybe focus on love thy neighbor as thyself and love each other and love the Lord thy God and and don't try to micromanage the the journey. I don't know. It's I'm Christian. I had my born again. I was in Baptist church for many years and then could no longer uh, because it was oppressive and it was interfering with church and state and I just could not take that anymore and Episcopal Church is a very comfy home where it doesn't do any of that. And it's just really, it's just really wackadoo that people are taking such extreme measures with their faith in such destructive ways. It's very weird. Um, there was talk about reversing gay marriage, talk about um, just full extreme and you know possibly because of the timing because Roe versus Wade just got overturned so there's this like zealous grab for power in the media right now and probably the media is exaggerating some of it too let's be clear but we'll see what the fallout is so now I mean yesterday it was like red waves coming <laughs> then today it's like now with the fall of Roe versus Wade, we anticipate a blue wave. It's like, make up your minds. Is there a red wave coming? Is there a blue wave coming? Every day it's different. Okay. And then you read about the blue wave, and it was like, well, we really hope we get 48% of the vote. It's like, if people can't be bothered to vote from the comfort of their own home, 
and they drop it in the mail, you know, or leave it in however the mail gets picked up for them, you know, then maybe they do need to live under a fascist regime of religious extremism. I don't know. If, if it's Handmaid's Tale because left extreme can't be bothered, right? Correct? I mean, those articles are so dreary to read about my party, the left. Um, well, we're hoping and, and maybe by a miracle we'll get a percentage of people that might want to go out to vote. It's like, it's so sad. It's like, what? And who, and which, and who? White Democrats? Probably not. BIPOC? Probably 100%. I mean, I'm old enough to remember Rock the Vote, and we're still writing articles in media about, well, maybe we'll get the 48% of people to vote, and if, if people turn out to vote, I'm tired. I'm tired. You know? Um, you're as free as you buy into freedom and your voice. And you're as oppressed as you buy into oppression to some degree. I'm just speaking only in the voting right now because everybody can vote. No, you don't have to wait in lines. And yes, you can vote um, from your house. Absentee. And there's this great invention called the internet that can help you know how to vote. And if you don't know how to vote, you can look up people that you admire and see how they vote and read what they think and copy them in the secrecy of your own house and no one will think you're stupid. See? So there's just no excuse not to vote. And it, this is the message. This is the wake-up call. This is Roe versus Wade. Wake-up call is like, well, they turned out to vote. So the left has to turn up to vote every single election, every single everything. And if we are not willing to, because we cannot be bothered, and if we as BIPOC, and I don't know that that's definitively the case, but it seems to have been the white liberal Democrats fretting and worrying and ifing and betting and will we, will we, and, you know... You know, it doesn't play into the narrative of Joe Biden being accused of letting millions of illegals in to get the vote. I mean, obviously, we Dems are not saying that. So, again, if my Democrats are not willing to vote or show up or be bothered and it's more fun to go to a protest and look cool and, you know forward social media posts and act like you're super interested and then not follow through. I don't know what to tell you. Do you want to live like the Handmaid's Tale? Do you want to live in those old days? You you have to be bothered. And if, you know, and we have to also identify really what the barriers are. And I say we meaning the Democrats because the Republicans turn out to vote. They always have, they always will. It's never a problem with them. Never. A lot of them don't even know really why they're voting in the way they're voting, but they vote. They do it. They're doers. So we need to invest some money, Nancy, Chuck, everybody. 
we need to invest some money into definitively definitively identifying barriers in the Democratic Party to voting. And I don't mean in person. You don't have to go in person. I mean, the easiest way is by absentee. So what is the barrier specifically? And guess what? If that research results that it's a certain demographic of a racial minority and people are just too embarrassed and shamed to call it out, we need to get over over that jam because it is taking our freedom away and human rights. So we have to be mature enough on the left to look at our ugly lack of voting groups what, and I mean, I don't mean the groups are ugly. I mean the lack of voting is ugly. The 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 can't be bothered. The bigger, better offer party somewhere else. I don't know. Um, whatever the reasons, we have to identify razor focused. Is that laser focused with razor sharp eyes? Um, what are the specific barriers to Democrats getting their votes in? I don't want to hear long lines at the poll. You don't have to wait at the poll. It gets mailed to your house. So once that research, that is my, that would be money worth investing. Okay. So once we find out and we use our science to laser focus in and determine exactly where are the leaky holes are in the boat, then we have to just strategically maneuver to get those vulnerable populations, whatever they are, to enfranchise and vote by by all means. I mean, we really have to ramp it up. So it's just, it's just, yeah, I'm going to be 47 this year and still reading about how the Dems are always worried about the voter turnout. It's just, it's it's not acceptable anymore. And it never should have been. And if that means that, that white liberals and BIPOC liberals are going to have some friction and some ruckus and some fur flying because of some groups not pulling their weight in the voting, then okay, you know, have it, do it. Topic for The View, topic for Bill Maher topic because we we all have to vote opting out is not acceptable opting out got us re, you know the overturning of Roe versus Wade we need to play the game better in the pol- political arena Because just as much as the Republicans let overturning Roe versus Wade happen, so did we by our ineptitude. Equally at fault. But we can change it. We can turn it around. It looks like Trump might have jail time if he gets nailed on one aspect of this case that has to do with, I think the voter fraud is what I read. The voter, oh, the false electors, the false elector votes, I think is like the most concrete way that Trump would ever do jail, Trump would ever do jail time. Okay. 
I think with January 6th, like as we all saw when it happened, you know, there, it, it, what it essentially did is show the Republicans you're not as united as you think you are. Yes, you all shown up to vote. Yes, you all, you know, are voters. We want to be like that. But at the same time, you cannot say you're one party united. There's no way. You have an insurrectionist group of extremists and then you have those that are not in the Republican Party. So that at least... The only thing good that came out of the insurrection was that clear, historic, never forget incident that will always splice the Republican Party, which was really always there. It's just it was it didn't have a demonstrative event. So and obviously the left were always divided. That's that's our baseline. You know, I don't care if we're divided, actually. What I care about is that every one of us divided people in the Dems vote, vote, vote. Don't, sh- don't go to a protest. Don't forward a foot social media post. Don't talk about politics. Don't have anything to do with any of it if you're not willing to vote. Your vote is your ticket to talk, basically. If we can, I'm just saying, culturally, as a party adopt that kind of view as discipline, you know, you don't get to speak on anything unless you show that you voted. Where's your I voted sticker? Yeah, vote. You know, where is it? <laughs> Where's your proof of voting? Maybe we should do that. Some sort of, well, I mean, we do have that in terms of the, you know, the stubs. Maybe the stubs have to be your proof to be able to talk on anything or the Yavote or the sticker. Because there's just, again, far too much show and not enough go if we're reading articles saying, well, we hope we're going to get the small percentage if people turn out, if people turn out to vote and Roe versus Wade was just return, overturned, if, if, meaning that's a possibility that they won't. I mean, right? This is hard stuff. It's hard to, to like face all this and we better darn well face it. Face our, you know, pathetic, reticent, lazy, can't be bothered selves sometimes until we're bothered. Because obviously those who are bothered get what they want in this government system. Okay, that's enough of my lamenting. <laughs> Lament, lament, dissent, but by means vote, okay? Everything. Okay, enough on that. So now we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about why I want World War III and how it relates to climate change and basically my news articles that came through that prove exactly what I was saying. So my whole theory and why I want World War III, well, A, I mean, not that you even like need much of a reason, but autocracies are evil. They're just evil. That's just very proven. Okay. Unjust, limited, most least amount of freedom to the individuals. Forget about what Elon Musk says. I don't know why he's on an autocratic kick. Um, it's inhumane and it's the worst government system historically and currently. Okay. So with the autocracies being evil and the democracies being the most just to their citizens, um, and different levels of, of justice, obviously. Parliament's at a higher level, and our system, not as high a level of justice, but 
still, you know, we have a say in theory. Okay. Um, so you have that as your baseline. Because autocrats don't speak the language of diplomacy, don't respect the language of diplomacy, don't honor or give honor to those under them because they're autocrats, um, there is no merging or United Nations that is actually going to work with autocratic governments and democratic governments. They're polar opposite. They're oil and water. They don't mix. They don't speak the same language. Um, there is no compromising. There's just a need for dominance of one or the other. Right? So this is what's coming to a head. Because what do you need to have for a whole world to fight climate change? You need to have what? You need to have a baseline of diplomacy. You need to be able to have a common frame of reference to be able to work through these problems of, you know, um, greed and destruction and inequity by the income inequality and on and on. And it, just the whole attitude of stewarding the earth versus, you know, pillaging the earth and such. Um, to be able to come up with a, with a consensus strategy to fight climate change effectively and rapidly. And because the autocratic governments do not respect the language of diplomacy, they're not going to be able to work with the democratic countries that do speak the language of diplomacy, that do work together well, that can make concessions and, and compromise. And so it's been this, well, we want to fight climate change as a world and it's really important the scientists have let us all know and we're all there and all the republicans are there finally i mean finally it took forever but finally and so now we're all like team climate change and then we have these barriers with these autocracies we have china and the greed and the and the greed fueled by you know um Uyghur Muslim global supply chain labor force, uh, immoral labor force, children labor force, and everything you can imagine, <coughs> and and all the ills that come with that, and them having been the global manufacturers that no longer can be trusted to be the global manufacturers because of how they uh, treat their workers, basically. So, you know... China's not going to change. And China is not trustworthy. And Chinese leaders, you know, are, are have a long track record of, of, of complete, you know, unreliability in their word. So they're no longer the world's global manufacturers. Um, we can't continue to produce crap that fills up the landfills in the oceans at the rate that they do. Everybody pretty much more or less is on board having less things of higher quality that last. And a cleaner, better world to offer their kids than all of the you know new gadgets available that are going to break in a year that you then have to replace and just goes right into the trash, into the landfill and into the ocean. And so, you know, yet we still have the China machine furiously turning out its 
basically slave labor products. Okay. And then we've had Democrat or you know, Demo- Democratic governments resist. And then we've had leadership from Trump um, putting tariffs on China. Thank you. And then continuance with Biden saying we're not importing goods from Xinjiang. Thank you. And there's growing resistance to this. Thank you. Bipartisan. Thank you. Better together. Um, and then we have the issue of wanting to use green energy, like, you know, the endless wind supply that all of this climate change is providing all of us with this, you know, wind farms and, you know, there's still a great more potential to harness far more wind energy that we're actually than we're actually doing, but it, it's slow going. Um, solar, of course, but of course we can't rely on solar power manufacturing coming from China. Yet again, not the answer. So we have this like duality of we all want to fight climate change. It's a world priority. The two biggest polluters are the U.S. and China. The U.S. has changed its values and are saying we don't want that junk anymore. We'll do better. We'll you know thrift stores. We'll do better with letter, better with less. It's fine. No, and then China is like not really believing it, but finally maybe starting to believe it now that both parties are saying no. Um, so. Yeah, there's tons of scientific inventions that have been around for decades to supply all the power we'd ever need ever, and it's always been toxic industry that's always suppressed that, bought out the patents, shelved it, you know, as I've been saying this entire time. And when, you know, I think the nuclear talks are over, people resurface nuclear for the millionth time, and it's like, no, they don't want the nuclear power, no. So then it's gone to all of these kind of like cleanup focuses, which are, I mean, better than nothing, but like, oh, we can vacuum it out of the sky. Let's just make mega vacuums and suck out the carbon. And, um, you know, it's not a forward approach to climate change, but it is something is better than nothing. True. I mean, anything's better than nothing. And yes, you can take, you can take science and use technology to make reactive cleanup crew type of way of managing climate change. Um, however, obviously the most efficient is not having it in the first place, right? I mean, and then at the same time, you have Putin in Europe um, causing all kinds of ruckus, who's ready to go to war. He's going to die in two years. He's got nothing to lose. Whoever would replace him would be the same. So this whole thing about take him out, kill him, whatever, I guess he's going to die of cancer or whatever he has anyway. So it doesn't matter. He will die, but it's not about him. It's about the regime because it's very enticing for the next Caligula to go, ooh, there's an appointment for me. Ah, mine. So it, you have to dismantle the whole structure. You can't just go, oh, well, Putin's dead, so it's all better. Well, if Hitler you know, took over back then and died, well, there would have been a new Hitler. There would have been a new... Nazi leader because the infrastructure still would have been there. You have to dismantle the infrastructure like was done in World War II and such needs to be done with the Russian government and the people, I believe, the Russian people are ready for the democracies that they have seen with their own eyes work better as have the Chinese. Um, 
So we have these stop gaps, China with the manufacturing. We have Putin who, you know, is, you know, a, a well, Russia itself is a major oil producer. Um, and we are not subscribing to that. We're not placating that. And I believe also, not just oil, they have other fossil fuel uh, resources, that they, which again is not helpful. So, but in the meantime, we have this pending World War III too at the same, I mean, World War III as well, as we have climate change and it's kind of coming to a head. So I'm just giving a backup. I hope you're following my train. So this is what Austria is saying. I'll, I'll kind of make sense of this later. I'm sorry if it's a little bit like ambiguous right now. It will make sense. So this was yesterday. Unimaginable, unimaginable. Austria prepares to reopen coal power station. Now you may think, why on earth would they be opening coal at this time? At the Melek coal power plant, southern Austria, spiderwebs have taken over the conveyor belts and plants and flowers have sprung up around the vast lots that once stored coal. The plant, Austria's last coal-fueled coal fueled power station, was closed in the spring of 2020, but now the government, nervous that Russia may cut its crucial gas deliveries further, has decided to get the site ready in case it's needed, meaning to be autonomous, or is that the word? No, independent of Russian energy. I never would have imagined that we would restart the factory, Peter Probst, a 55-year-old welder, told AFP during a visit to the plant. It's really sad to be so dependent on gas, he added. Europe has been trying to move away from coal in the fight against climate change, but as Russia has cut gas deliveries in the wake of sanctions, the West has imposed on it for the war in Ukraine, which is, I approve of that, please continue. Uh, European countries are turning back to coal. Today, the Melek plants, white and red, but they're only turning back to coal, I'm going to add my note here, because of Putin. And what is Putin an autocrat? And what does this represent? Autocrats, right? Can't work with them. Can't speak the language of diplomacy. No deals with them. So the Europe it has having to turn back to coal. So they would not be dependent on Russian anything. Today, the Melek plants, white and red chimney stands out amid fields of corn, corn and pumpkins. The city of grass in the distance. Inside, the walls are black and coal dust clings to the doors and railings. And probably the lungs of the workers. Some, some 450,000 tons of coal were stored at the plant before its closures. Austria's conservative Greens a coalition aimed to have all the electricity come from renewable resources by 2030. Site manager Christoph Kurtzman Friedi says a plant operator operated by supplier Verbund can be ready again in about four months. It's the time to help tackle any gas shortages in the winter. Emergency measure. Chancellor Karl Nehammer insisted on Monday that the plant would only go online if necessary while Austria holds on to its goals to reduce emissions. It's really an emergency measure, the conservative told foreign correspondents at a briefing. It's really something that shows how extraordinary our times are. We must prepare for any eventuality. The 230 megawatt power plant would take over from the nearby gas-fired plant. 
Also operated by Verband, which currently supplies heating to Grasse's 300,000 inhabitants, according to Kurzman Friedel. He warned, however, that site must be still ready to hooking up all the equipment again, in addition to hiring qualified personnel and, above all, finding enough coal. Before, the coal mainly came from the mines in Poland, Silsi region, where the Polish government is aiming to shut. Because coal prices have risen as much as three times since 2020, the power produced by the plant will also be more expensive, Kurzman Friedland said. Criticism has already flared with the opposition Social Democrats slamming the decision to reactivate the coal plant as an act of desperation by the Greens. Will the next step be reactivation of Zwentedorf, the opposition asked, referring to the country's only nuclear power plant? It might be. It might be for right now. The Alpine nation of 9 million people has already been fiercely anti-nuke and an unprecedented vote in 1978 against nuclear energy that prevented the plant from ever opening. Okay. So I, I think the picture is clear here. It's not that they want to go backward. It's not that Austria wants to go backward. Austria is predicting, as they should, you know, the eventual, um, if not impending soon, World War III that Putin will be a part of. Because <laughs> I think he'd want to go down with a big nuke, don't you? I mean, he really does seem the Darth Vader type. Yeah? Self-destructive to the end. I think he would. And so Austria is being wise to go, listen, this is, you know, reinvesting in coal, reinvesting in nuclear power. Not our first choice, not even our second choice. Back burner emergency if we have to, if we have to be completely self-reliant for the midterm, for the meantime, during the quote-unquote pending war. Now, I'm adding that in, but I'm just saying, I can't say, I can't fault Austria for that. And honestly, that's probably the position that most of us in the allies, allied countries are going to have to take, you know, um, and specifically Europe because of the vulnerability of the winters there. Yeah. Which the Russians are equally vulnerable to as well because of the extreme weather. But what I'm saying is, this is what I'm saying. It, it, to make serious concerted efforts on a global level to really fight climate change, we all have to have a baseline. And having these autocrats, China, Xi Jinping, you know, North Korea is not really affecting, I don't think, as much, but, you know, um, still, they're terrible. But, um, you know, Putin is definitely affecting it. Um, you know, these are just, they are obstacles. The autocrats are obstacles in the progressive, collective, democratic world that is needing to be dominant because we all have to work together to fight climate change and there just is no working with autocrats. They don't care about anything but their own power. They don't care about continuing their line of their own power and that is it. And everything else is a tool for that end. You know, where the democratic nations sure have vested interests in their own power as well, but they're far more equitable to the people they govern. And they have a broader interest in human justice to the people they govern. Um, so it is this kind of like two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, because we're, we're going to keep constantly running into oh, autocrat, oh, autocrat again, autocrat again, autocrat leader again. And that's why the World War III in part two, in terms of the climate change angle, in addition to all the social justice and everything else, 
um, is so imperative to have this World War III to wipe off these autocratic governments, liberate the people under them with their own models, not Western imperializing, but Taiwan's ready to go and Hong Kong as well. They have their own models. This isn't a Western imposition. They're already up and running. And Ukraine, you know, I don't know what would shape necessarily the future Russian democratic country. Um, I just don't know that much, honestly, about Russian people in terms of like, are there little provinces since the USSR fell that are somewhat democratic? If there's none, well, then it's time that they birth it. I don't know how that would work exactly, but it's needed. Yeah. Certainly Russians in America can observe and experience and participate in a democracy or Russians in Europe or Russians elsewhere. Um, you know, they have the observation, they, they know how it works. And one would guess they would want that for their family, their families. But because they've had such an oppressive structure there for so long, you know, you kind of do need to break it apart to build it up. So I don't know what would help shape the new Russian post-Putin regime that would be democratic parliament. Um, but I'm sure there's plenty of smart Russians out there could, that could do it. So World War Three, in part, is the antecedent event that needs to happen, both for broad-scale social justice for the world, the removal of autocrats once and for all, and then the tender weeding of the garden of the earth to make sure that no any new roots get plucked out quickly. And then we all have the baseline to have a real new world order, a new kind of UN, um, where we're all willing to compromise, work together. We all value the language of diplomacy. We can concert our efforts to really um, making impact in climate change on a um, on a coordinated effort that doesn't have these obstructions with these destructive, powerful autocratic and there's not many of them, by the way. <laughs> you know, obviously there's far more, you know, parliament and democratic countries than there are autocrats, but the autocrats that are around are incredibly powerful, but not more than us, right? That's why it's so important to engage the UK in this um, and why they're so quiet all the time. Like, inappropriately quiet for the world stage here. I don't know what BBC's up to. You can't just only talk about the royals and Boris. Like, we need to hear from the everyday English, please. So, we've heard from pretty much everybody else, you know. So, if this means in the meantime, countries like Austria, countries like UK, France, whatever, have to resort to nuclear power, have to resort to fossil fuels and, co and coal for the stopgap until these autocrats are out. And hence, let's hustle this war, please. The sooner it starts, the sooner it ends. Then we really can have the slate cleared and not have to. And by the way, it doesn't mean either or. Like You also can have progress with the world governments on these incremental, you know, um, progress, but I'm not saying do nothing, but I'm also saying don't be too discouraged for what appears to be backward motion 
which may be necessary just because of this point of Russia, you know, being a problem and Putin's regime. And the dire need to be alive in winter in you know sub-zero weather oftentimes so yeah i'm 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 very environmental for most people that know me and i would even say if you need to go to fossil fuels for the interim until this war starts and ends as a backup emergency type of you know what is it generator type concept then yeah I mean, I think that's really going to be the future of fossil fuels anyway, is it needs to graduate away from primary fuel source to emergency generator fuel source. You know, had we been back in Al Gore's day, you know, up to par with global warming, and the scientists told us all then too, right? But of course, toxic industry, Bush, everybody, I don't know, I guess the icebergs didn't melt fast enough for Republicans to see it. I'm not exactly sure why, um, other than money and greed and denial. Um, you know, the thing is, we could have been a lot further ahead had we listened to Al Gore back then, right? Um, most of us, you know, entertained what he said and believed it and not enough to really make obvious, obvious changes there. And then, you know, um, so because we didn't do that, because we are at a place of dire emergency and we're trying to scramble and figure it out, plus we have these, you know, really problematic autocratic governments that need to be re- removed from the earth, basically, and taken over by their own local um, democracy burgeoning places so that it doesn't in, it repeat a Western imperialism type of history that I'm sure England definitely does not want to repeat. And I understand that. I, I think we all understand that. At the same time, um, you know, we really all do need to stand together solidly against autocracy. Including the burgeoning little autocracy in our country. Like, no. Which is still small, believe it or not, but the way that they're working it is very influential, but it's still small. That's why I say, like, Democrats have to make getting everybody to vote the priority. Put the money to finding where is the problem. Shed light on the problem. Don't be afraid of hurting feelings. Don't be afraid of shame-basing, if need be, embarrassing. Whatever we have to do to get people to vote. Okay. Back to that, right? Um... So, yeah, we may have to regress a little bit and go back to fossil fuels for emergency backup measures. So then there's a proactive and a reactive approach. So this is the proactive approach. Green hydrogen by Jean Bader Schneider. I'm going my market watch. Green hydrogen is the ultimate answer to high gas prices, climate change, and saber-rattling dictators. <laughs> Saber, lightsaber. Thank you. I love that they are making the Star Wars connotation. It totally is true. Hydrogen H2. They look like massive big propane tanks, but they're hydrogen tanks. See? We have little propane tanks. We can switch those out with hydrogen tanks. Nice. Okay. Why hydrogen can actually make climate change worse? Oh, that's a different video. Well, there's always going to be 
toxic industry wanting to debunk. So never forget that part. Washington Project Syndicate. Human-induced climate change is causing dangerous widespread environmental disruption and infecting lives of billions of people around the world, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The world faces unavoidable climate hazards over the next two decades. But with average annual global greenhouse gas emissions reaching their highest levels in human history between 2010 and 2019, we're simply not doing enough to li- limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The IPCC report released in April recommended that the world rapidly reduce fossil fuel supply and demand between now and 2050 by 95% in the case of coal, 60% for oil, 45% for natural gas. But how can we possibly achieve such ambitious targets? Revolutionary power. The answer is by switching to green hydrogen, which can be produced from all forms of renewable energy, solar, wind, hydro, geothermal. Green hydrogen is a zero emissions fuel when produced through electrolysis. The only emission is water. It is a practical and implementable solution that by democratizing energy, decarbonizing heavy industry, and creating jobs globally would help revolutionize the way we power our planet. A group of almost 300 airlines have committed to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. But just how are they going to get there? WSJ's George Downs explores some methods that International Air Transport Association suggested for emissions reduction. A rapid acceleration of green energy transition can also fundamentally alter a geopolitical landscape since countries no longer be powerful simply because of fossil fuels they produce. Oh, I don't know, like autocrats and yes, like all the wars, right? Yeah. In 2021, Russia provided 34% of Germany's crude oil and 53% of the hard coal used by German power generators and steelmakers. Russian pipe natural gas was Germany's largest source of gas imports in 2021 December, accounting for 32% of the supply. Since Russian President Vladimir Putin launched his horrific and just war in Ukraine in February, fossil fuel exports to Europe have been earning Russia roughly $1 billion a day. But since the start of the invasion in Europe, I mean, in February, European Union countries in particular moved quickly to reduce energy dependence on Russia, recently agreeing to ban all seaborne imports of Russian oil. These new sanctions against Putin's war machine could cut the amount of oil the EU buys from Russia by 90% this year. Well done, European Union. The U.S. has declared a complete ban on Russian oil, gas, and coal imports. Yes. While the U.K. is phasing out imports of Russian oil by the end of this year. These policies have sent fuel prices soaring, but sharp higher increases have also highlighted the opportunity to drive down energy costs by investing in renewables. Production of green hydrogen. Competitive with fossil. New research suggests that green hydrogen will be competitive with fossil fuels over the next decade. Cost of green hydrogen especially expected to decline significantly by 2025 and fall to $1 per kilogram by 2030 in favorable locations such as Australia. For comparison, gray hydrogen, which is made using polluting liquefied natural gas, currently costs around $2 per kilogram. Some advocates using LNG to solve the current energy security crisis. But natural gas contains methane. And the IPCC says we must reduce use of natural gas by almost 45% by 2050. Adding more to the energy mix now would be a, catastroph- a catastrophic mistake. So there has to, So there is now a global race for green energy and specifically for green hydrogen. Dozens of countries that have abundantly renewable energy sources can develop energy dependence by producing green hydrogen at scale. 
and energy importers will not have to rely on a few countries, such as Russia, that have a natural endowment of fossil fuels. In a recent report, the International Renewable Energy Agency said that green hydrogen can bolster energy security in three main ways, reducing import dependence, mitigating price volatility, boosting energy systems flexibility and resilience through diversification. As technologies improve, cost of green hydrogen will fall. We must do everything we can to accelerate the process. European goals. Companies like Fertask, where I'm on board director, investing significantly in green hydrogen will help replace Russian fossil fuels with green energy. Fortescue recently announced an agreement with Germany's largest energy distributor, EON, to supply Europe with 5 million tons of green hydrogen a year by 2030, equivalent of one-third of the calorific value of the energy that Germany currently imports from Russia. But while the rapid changes in the energy and geopolitical landscape present a clear opportunity to adjust the energy and climate crisis simultaneously by investing in green energy, there is a clear perception of unfairness when developed countries claim that relatively low-emitting developed economies need to shut down fossil fuel use. Why should they risk slowing the development to address a problem they've played no part in causing? It's a valid question. Policymakers will need to account for developing countries' interests during the green transition, enhance funding, and incentives for them to move into clean energy as a basis of industrialization. The world is clearly at a fork in a road. We can remain locked into a costly, polluting future that is hideously inefficient and empowers only a handful of fossil fuel-rich countries. Alternatively, we can choose a green revolution of low-cost energy for all that that keeps the future secure from pollution, global warming, and dictators. Given that green energy has the power to de- democratize democratize global supply as more countries achieve energy independence the choice is not difficult i mean i'm convinced (laughs) sold sold right there so then we have these other strategies so that's a progressive strategy that's a problem solving strategy it's a good strategy to investigate and rapidly multiply I think it goes well with the New World Order myself, which I envision to be a new type of UN without autocratic governments because there won't be any left because they'll be rooted out in World War III, ideally. So let's talk about this backward approach, which, you know, all ideas on the table right now, right? Everything in stages. Catherine Clifford, CSNBC, from, or CNBC rather, from milligrams to gigaton startup that sucks carbon dioxide from the air is building a big planet, big plant in Iceland. Carbon dioxide removal company Climeworks announced on Tuesday it's building a secondhand commercial sized plant in Iceland that will capture and store 36,000 metric tons per year of carbon dioxide. So essentially a big vacuum in the sky. The company's goals are ambitious. It plans to remove millions of tons of CO2 by year by 2030 and a billion per year by 2050. Meanwhile, humans emitted more than 36 billion tons of CO2 last year. Co-founder and so co-CEO Jan Wurzbecker, 38, was just 25 years old when Climeworks was launching in a world where the idea of carbon removal was seen as a distraction. We just went on and didn't listen to them much, the doubters, he said. Carbon dioxide removal startup Climeworks announced on Tuesday it's building a second commercial-sized plant in Iceland. We're fully operational at 8 to 24 months. The plant will capture and store 36,000 metric tons per year of carbon dioxide. The amount, this amounts to a minuscule percentage of total, total global emissions of carbon dioxide released into the air each year. In 2021, they hit a record high of 36.3 billion metric tons. According to the International 
Energy Agency, a Paris-based international energy organization. But this new factory alongside the smaller one in Iceland has the capacity to remove 4,000 tons a year, just the first step in Climeworks and Kate taking toward its goal of removing multiple millions of tons of carbon dioxide dioxide a year by 2030 and a billion tons by 2050. Those targets are many orders of magnitude higher than where the Climeworks is right now. But as co-founder and co-CEO Jan Wurzberger told CNBC in May, the team has been at it for 13 years to see technology improve vastly during that time. We started with milligrams of carbon dioxide captured from the air. Then we went from milligrams to grams, grams to kilograms, to tons, to thousand tons. So we did quite a couple of things. We did quite a couple of these steps already. Wurstberger and Christopher Jabal launched Climeworks in 2009 as a spinoff of ETH Zurich, the main tech university in Switzerland, the largest city. The idea of vacuuming carbon dioxide out of the air has been getting more mainstream attention and hundreds of millions of funding recently. I wonder by who. Could that be by the toxic industry of fossil fuels? I think so. If in April, payment processor Stripe, Google, parent Alphabet, Facebook, parent Meta, Shopify, and McKinsey announced they were teaming up to commit to purchase almost $1 billion worth of carbon dioxide removal from companies that are developing this technology a couple days later. Chris Saka's climate investment company, Lower Carbon Capital, announced a $350 million fund to invest in carbon, carbon removal startups. The kind of momentum in the industry was certainly not the norm. When Climeworks started back in 2009, the environment were definitely very different. Wurstberger told CNBC, there was ongoing climate debate. It was more of a debate about how we can avoid emissions. And when we came up with a method of capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, many people said, hey, wait a minute, let's not waste our time with that. But now, in addition to private sector investment, UN Nations leading climate science organization and our governmental panel on climate change, including carbon capture and its update, April update for addressing global warming. Carbon dioxide removal, CDR, is necessary to achieve net zero carbon dioxide greenhouse gas emissions both globally and nationally and counterbalancing hard to abate residual emissions. Technical summary of IPP, IPCC recommendation says, CDR is also essentially an uh, element and scenario that limits warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or likely below 2 degrees Celsius by 2100, regardless of whether global emissions reach net zero or net zero or negative net net levels. There are other ways to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere besides vacuuming it from the air. Planting trees, natural method. It takes a lot more time. Land and factories, climb works, they build to remove equivalent of CO2. Tree can die. It can be cut down, burned after it's planted, making it hard to account for how much CO2 will actually remove it over its lifetime. Carbon dioxide removed from the air mechanically, as climb works does, can be permanently stored underground. When Wurzbacher and Jabald were sure that the technical carbon dioxide removal would be necessary to respond to climate change, many others were not. Of course, there were a lot of skeptics at the point in time, Wurzbacher told CNBC. We didn't know what would happen exactly, how things would turn out, how long it would take to develop the tech, scale the tech. But for us, it was somehow clear that this is somehow will be needed. Wurzbacher 38 was just 25 the company started. We, oh, yeah, we already read that. After developing by the carbon removal technology in the lab for close to a decade, Climeworks built its first plant in Hinwell, Switzerland in 2017. At the time Climeworks sold the carbon dioxide, it captured to customers like local greenhouse for using it 
and fertilizing vegetable growth to beverage maker Coca-Cola, these kinds of initial niche applications were not climate relevant. Whereas Barker told CNBC, but were simply a demonstration of tech itself. From the very beginning, the goal was to always come up with a climate relevant solution. Whereas Barker said, early on, we looked for niche applications to get things rolling because there was no market at the point at the time for negative emissions. But years later, as consumers and businesses grew more concerned, company began seeing demand. In 2018, Climeworks began allowing individuals to pay anything from $36 to $120 a month to have inter- company remove the same amount of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere on their behalf. So far, more than 14,000 people have signed on. Around that same time, corporate clients Microsoft, Stripe, Shopify are doing business with Climeworks in order to demonstrate their climate commitments. Now Climeworks is primarily removing carbon and storing it underground by mineralizing it with basalt rock, selling captured carbon dioxide for use in fizzy drinks or greenhouse or more or less negligible. Um, are more or less ne- negligible. Sorry, worst buckers hold CNBC. Carbon removal demand is largely coming from companies who see climate goals. Being able to sell a product from as either carbon neutral, carbon negative, as a vital ingredient to business in the future. Worst buckers hold CNBC. These companies are currently our customers. They're taking the fact that they are removing carbon from the atmosphere and making an element of their product as of their services. In September 21, Climeworks opens its first commercial direct air carbon capture store plant in Iceland. Composed of eight carbon capturing modules from 44 shipping containers with filters inside that were able to remove 4,000 tons of carbon dioxide per year. Climeworks picked Iceland to open its first plant in part because of its carbon storage partner, Carbfix, is based there because of there were sufficient resources of renewable energy in Iceland would be counterproductive to burn fossil fuels, which release carbon dioxide in the air to um, power carbon neutral plants. Sorry, we have to race read this. This is really long. Uh, until recently, Climeworks is funded by $150 million of money from private individual investors. But April, Climeworks announced it raised $650 million from collection investors, including Global Founders, Capital, John Doerr, Swiss RE. The market for carbon dioxide removal has basically had exponential development over the past two years and a half. It's overwhelmingly basically what is happening currently. In addition to wrapping up capacity, Climeworks is focusing on reducing the costs. We're not going to get into all that. No, I have to skim. It's just way too long an article. Way too long. Learn how to edit, writer. We don't need to know every little detail. Goodness. Sum up. Eventually, policy will be required to scale this up. Governments can also help drive demand in the space through regulated mandated carbon budgets for a price on carbon. I mean, you know, all ideas on the table by all means, but I like the shift to green hydrogen um, because of what they said. It seems to be more um, diversity, equity, inclusion oriented, DEI, and anything against the toxic uh, industry would be helpful because I don't think these cleanup measures, while it's super interesting, and I mean, I've read about, you know, companies making diamonds out of, you know, captured carbon as a way, you know, for people to now buy wedding rings out of like garbage made into carbon diamonds. Um, it's very interesting and all, but we really have to do impact. And we have to do this without constantly running up against issues with Russia and China. Or relying on countries in the Middle East for fossil fuels, as we know far well with Iraq and Afghanistan issues. Um, so green hydrogen, I mean, certainly it, it can be made, as they said, from all the different combined sources. 
of renewable energy, solar, wind, power, and everything else. So, I mean, that does seem like the best answer. But will it gain traction? Okay. So that was a very pro-green hydrogen answer. You'd have to be fair to read the rebuttal and see what would be the cons in developing mass green hydrogen options. I don't know. So that would be nice to have kind of a more like both sides of the issue to really see if it's feasible, if it's, you know, this is someone who wrote that that was very much pro-green hydrogen. It was invested in green hydrogen, but what about the other side? If the other side is just um, poo-pooing it because of toxic industry not wanting to lose profit, certainly that's not a, not a reason to hold back. Um, energy autonomy is something that ideally in the New World Order everybody would have. So there wouldn't be this political pull on it. Um, anyway, we only have 10 seconds left. Sorry, but that's why in some ways World War III is important to have to get rid of these autocrats to be independent for energy and climate change.